Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 12. We'll be covering Romans chapter 8, but we're going to start actually in Romans 6. Let me give, begin, though, by giving you an, an illustration. Uh, October 1982, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. There was 60,000 fans, most of whom were pulling for the Badgers to defeat the Michigan State Spartans. But uh, as the game began, it quickly became apparent that the Badgers were not going to have a good day. Spartans were killing them. Uh, but what was interesting is that throughout the game, even as the Badgers were losing, that Badger fans would periodically erupt in cheers and applause. And apparently what was happening is that 70 miles down the road, the Milwaukee Brewers were defeating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the World Series. And so a lot of folks had an earbud and radio going, and they were listening to this other game, and quite out of sync with what was happening on the field, they would cheer, because they were cheering for the Brewers. And I thought that was a great illustration of the Christian life, because so often we find ourselves cheering and the world is groaning. And then we find ourselves groaning and sighing and the world is cheering. It seems that we're not quite in step with the world. There's something about us that we don't quite fit in. And Paul says that's right and that's appropriate because we are not of this world. We're in this world, but we're not a part of this age and this system. And it is our calling not to follow along with the way the world is going, but to keep in step with the Spirit or to walk as the Spirit directs us to walk. And so last week we began looking at Paul's description in Romans chapter 8 of the spirit-led life when we said, first of all, it is a life of spirit-guided practice. I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 6 where Paul actually begins this argument. Romans chapter 6 verse 12. Paul says, therefore, therefore because you are no longer in sin, You're no longer in that realm, but you've been transferred into the realm of Christ. You have been identified with him in his death and in his burial, but also in his resurrection. You don't have to say yes to sin any longer. Therefore, since your identification has fundamentally changed, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And don't keep on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. Present. That's the first imperative that Paul gives in this section. Make yourselves available to God. The members of your body, your physical body, including your mind and your thoughts and everything, put yourself at God's disposal because you are now in Christ and he died and he was buried, but he also rose from the dead. So sin doesn't have to be master over you any longer. Your entire being can be, in Paul's analogy, a weapon of righteousness. Present. And in chapter 8, Paul develops a different analogy. He begins to talk about walking according to the Spirit. Or as he says in Galatians, walk in step with the Spirit. Which means frequently you will be out of step with the culture around you. How do we do this? He issues a third imperative. He says, set your mind upon the things of the Spirit, or have the Spirit's mindset, the Spirit's orientation toward life. God's truth, God's word, God's value system, let that permeate everything you think about moment by moment, but also your entire worldview. Let God change your mind. 
Because what you believe is true and valuable and enduring, that will determine the choices uh, that you make in life, your behavior as well as all of your attitudes. So let God change your mind or your mindset. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 12. Keep your place here in Romans 6. Turn back to Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, Paul is going to reiterate this concept. Again in chapter 12, he gets back into a very practical section in 12 through 16. And he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Make yourself available to God so that he can transform you by the renewing of your mind. Okay, by transforming, again, your entire worldview, your entire perception of what's true and valuable and important and enduring and lasting in life. And we said last week, there are three activities, so to speak, that we engage in. The first is uh, we crucify, or as Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body. Put your body in a place in which it's, if not impossible, at least difficult to continue in those sinful patterns. Change the way that you structure your life. Because the will is inherently weak. The body, its members are inherently weak and crave what they crave and they want it when they want it. So change the structure of your life so that your body and its lusts are not in control of you. Second, cultivate. That is, uh, put yourself in a position in which God can have access to your mind and your body. Spiritual disciplines, we talked about these things. That is, placing yourself and making yourself available to God through his spirit so his spirit can change you. And then third, imitate. As follow the example or the pattern that you see in Jesus Christ, that you see in Paul, maybe that you see in godly believers around you. Crucify, cultivate, and imitate. Uh, and this last week, after I finished the sermon, I got a, an email from a friend of mine. And he said, you know, Brian, I'm trying to track with you, but it sounds like you're saying two different messages. Because in Romans 1 through 5, we were talking grace, 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 and now this sounds a little bit legalistic. Because now we've shifted into imperatives, into commands, right? Romans 1 through 5, you you cannot earn a relationship with God. It's by his grace received through faith. And then in chapter 7, it appears that Paul tries to exert his effort in sanctification and he experiences failure. That seems to be a contradiction. This is a really important question. So before we rush on in chapter 8, I want to go back as if it was in his mind. I said it's probably in the minds of others. How do we understand God's part and our part? And how do we avoid drifting into a legalistic approach in our relationship with God? I understood what he said. And Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like we're responsible for something. And he says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Remember, literally, I blacken my eye. I enslave my body so that my body's not the master, but instead, it's a tool. It's a servant. As it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, discipline yourself, Timothy, for the purpose of godliness. For it is for this purpose that we labor and strive. Literally, we agonize and we work to the point of weariness for this purpose that we would become godly. So is that legalist? You know... 
Paul, we always say he's the apostle of grace. Is he also the apostle of legalism? I want to back up for a moment. What is legalism? What is legalism, really? First, pursuing justification through my own effort. Remember, justification means to be declared in right relationship with God, to move out of darkness into light, or to move out of death into life. To be separated from God, but then to be declared in a right relationship with God. And we cannot do this through our own effort. It's the work of God, and we receive it by faith. Uh, Frequently, when I'm sharing the gospel, I take people back to Romans chapter 4, verse 5. I think this is the clearest statement. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does not work. So it's not faith and works. It's certainly not works. It's by grace through faith alone that we are declared in right relationship with God. It's legalism to say that I add something to that other than receiving a gift. Second, thank you. Appreciate that. Is that Carl? Amen. All right. Second, believing disciplines, that is my activity, are the goal of sanctification. Okay, you tracking with me? In other words, sanctification is the practice of disciplines. So if I'm practicing the disciplines, therefore I am Sanctified, by definition, these are the things that are holiness. That is legalism. What is sanctification? It is the transformation of our character into the likeness of Christ. Right? It is love. When we're tempted to hate or retaliate, it's doing good for that person and forgiving and serving and continuing to show grace. It's joy when our circumstances are crushing us and the world would complain, we rejoice and give thanks. It's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, self-control. Okay? Things that are internal. Okay? That's the goal. That is what sanctification is. Okay? So a third element of legalism is believing that disciplines alone can change my character. So because I've participated in these things... Therefore, my character will be changed. And if I read my Bible another hour, I'm going to get incrementally another hour of character change. Right? Okay, that's legalism. That's not understanding the process. Fourth, evaluating other sanctification by their practice and their practice relative to some standard that I've created, which may include biblical elements or non-biblical elements. doesn't really matter, but I'm saying this is a measure of your sanctification rather than understanding sanctification is about godliness Holiness, character change, okay, internal. Okay, all of these are forms of legalism. Now, let me give you a couple principles then of sanctification. Okay? And this is what I wrote to my, my friend last night. I have a couple caveats. The first is, I don't fully understand this process comprehensively. This, I don't have the final word on how to walk with the Lord. Okay? I... I Don't think I do. I don't. I know I don't. Um, I don't understand all of it. What I do understand, I don't always communicate well. I understand that. That's why we're backing up a little bit, right? And uh, what I communicate well, I don't always practice well myself, right? I'm just, here I am, fellow struggler with you, okay? A couple things I've learned, though. Biblically speaking, God alone can change your character. Okay, sanctification is God changing us. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. Because the kind of change required is so deep down and rooted 
in our flesh that only God can change it. Okay? Only God changes. But second, God will not coerce character change. He requires our cooperation. That's what spiritual disciplines are about. They are about us cooperating with what God wants to do in our lives, making our lives, all of us, our, our bodies, but also our minds and our hearts, our emotions, our will, making that accessible to God's spirit to change us. So we can look at this from a variety of different angles. Negatively, Paul says in Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. How do I make myself available to the spirit? Well, Paul says, don't make yourself available to the flesh. Start there, right? Change the patterns of your life so that fleshly thinking, fleshly activities are less accessible or inaccessible to you, okay? That's just wisdom. That's wisdom. The positive side is this, Hebrews chapter 5. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That is, they have set patterns in their lives that make them step day by day with the Spirit. That may be uh, things that they avoid, but it also may be things they participate in. There is a pattern of letting their minds be bathed in the Word of God. Okay? Constantly. And in prayer, Constantly. Third, there's a personal component. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. This is just understanding the way that human beings learn and grow. We, we learn best and, and, and most directly when we can see it in, in a form that's analogous to who we are. You know, a, a person like us, whether looking at the pattern of Christ's life in the Bible or Paul's life, or looking at another believer around you, I think that's why God gives us a body, to grow together as a body. Because we do. We imitate one another. Okay? And all three of these perspectives are true. This, to me, is, is an understanding of what is God's part and what is our part. God causes the change. We cooperate. And there are ways in which we cooperate. And our cooperation itself doesn't change us. God changes us. Yeah, I think sometimes that we look at this whole process of sanctification as if we are rechargeable batteries. Right? And what we do is we, we need to get recharged once in a while. So we come to church, plug in, get refilled, go out into the world and get drained. And so we go and we get plugged in to Bible study or home church to get us through midweek on. And then we get drained, right? And then maybe we have a, a small group that we meet with or we have a quiet time or we listen to a praise so, uh, CD on the way into work and we get refilled a little bit and then we get drained, Right? I don't think that's a good analogy. I think a better analogy is that we are like an electric appliance. When we're plugged in, it works. When we're not plugged in, it doesn't work at all. Okay? It's not recharge and then run on our own for a while. It's figuring out what are patterns in my life so that whether I'm at church or I'm at work or I'm at home, I am plugged in. Uh, Brother Andrew wrote a, a wonderful little book called Practicing the Presence. Practicing the Presence of God. And he said for him, what was critical was learning how to clean dishes or tend the garden and have God on his mind. So being at work and doing all things to the glory of God, whatever your hand finds to do, doing all to the glory of God, uh, reminding yourself moment by moment, even after you're going through the daily steps of work or home 
or play. That to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And that, to me, is what these patterns are about. That's what Paul is talking about. And that is, uh, it's not flashy, as we said last week. It's, it's often not dramatic. It is just walking. Or to use Christ's analogy in John 15, abide in me. Abide in me. You're the branch, I'm the vine. You cannot produce fruit on your own. The branch doesn't say, let me try harder. There's the fruit. Okay? That's not how it works, is it? No, the branch says, let me plug in. And then the source will produce the fruit. And what is my job? Stay plugged in and don't let go. Because if the branch is severed, the branch dies. That to me is the balance. And what Paul is talking about then is daily, moment by moment, day after day, keeping in step with the Spirit so that God's Spirit transforms our mind, our whole way of thinking. And as we do that, we see benefits or blessings. Okay? The first is we experience Spirit-secured status before God. Read with me chapter 8. Go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Okay? Paul develops this experience of walking according to the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Why didn't Paul say sons and daughters? Paul is sexist. Is, is, is Paul only addressing the men who are reading this letter? No. In Paul's culture, sonship was status. In particular, to be adopted by a son was a very vivid image in the Roman mind because they had uh, ceremonies and law that governed adoption. A, a man could take a young boy or a young, a young man and he could uh, bring him into his home. And as that man, young man uh, began to grow and he reached the age of maturity, he could confer upon him the status of son. If you've ever seen Ben-Hur, there's a, there's a, a picture of this in, in Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is adopted by a Roman general because he has saved this man's life. And he, is, uh, he receives the toga of Roman citizenship. He receives the signet ring for the family. He gets all of the rights and privileges, not just of family, but of the status of being a Roman citizen. That's the image that Paul is drawing upon here for his readers. He's saying, God has changed your status. You are now sons of God. And that status is secure. In a couple weeks, at the end of Romans 8, we're going to talk about the doctrine of eternal security. But let me just say here, the reason I believe in the doctrine of eternal security is not merely that a lot of verses specifically say we're secure, but because the imagery of the family of God is family. Okay? God is a father. Christ is our brother. And God is making brothers and sisters for Jesus Christ out of us. And God is a perfect father. And he loves us absolutely and faithfully. And when we fail, he does not shut us off. And he does not say, you are no longer my son. He may discipline us, but it's always for the purpose of our good. Once we are his children, we belong to him forever. And what we have to realize is that every single one of us was born outside of the family of God. Every single person in here who has believed in Jesus Christ has been adopted. 
You were born outside of the family of God, alienated from God, born into a hostile family. And God, through his spirit, took you out of that family and he placed you securely in the family of Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn among many brothers and many sisters. And now, belonging to him, we will always belong to him. Hey, that's the beauty of the gospel. If you have never believed that Jesus died for your sins, I encourage you this morning, tell God, I believe. I believe that Jesus died, and as a result, I believe that I can be in your family. And I can be forever secure. That is part of the Spirit's ministry to us. As we are keeping in step with the Spirit, the Spirit is reminding us, you are secure. And that gives us greater and greater confidence to resist sin and to live for righteousness. Now, third, we receive Spirit-encouraged intimacy Read with me again chapter 15, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery, which leads to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In verse 16, where it says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, I believe a better translation is the Spirit himself testifies to our spirit. The Spirit of God is now dwelling within us permanently. And part of the Spirit's ministry is that he is declaring to our spirit that we are children of God. And if you notice carefully, he's switched now his terminology from sons, which is an issue of status, to children, which is a term of endearment. The Spirit is testifying to our spirit that we are dear to God. The term child is a term of endearment. Frequently, Jesus would use it, regardless of age, to the people that he came upon who were, who were poor or destitute or had disease and they needed something from him. He would say, my child, let me do that for you. This is the term that Paul most frequently used of Timothy. He said, Timothy, you are my beloved child. Timothy was an adult man. He said, you're my child. You're my child in the faith. You're my beloved child. It's in term of endearment. And the Spirit is testifying to our spirit as we walk with the Spirit that God loves us. Okay? Emotionally, God loves us and cares for us. And that gives us confidence to cry out, Abba. Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It means daddy. Not father. Not dad. It means daddy. You know, as my kids have gotten a little bit older now, it's, it's more dad. And I want, I want daddy. <laughs> you know? Sometimes I tell them, Can I, did you say daddy? My 10-year-old son particularly getting a little bit old already for, for Daddy. So that, that's what it is, because I, I love you. Well, sometimes actually I want father, but <laughs> I also want, I want daddy too. And that's what Paul is saying. The spirit himself testifies that we belong to God and we can cry out, daddy. There's one other person in, in biblical history that cried out, daddy. Remember who it was? Yeah, Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, do you remember the setting? Jesus is in trouble. Jesus is in distress. Jesus is about to face the cross and he is afraid. And so he's in the garden and he is praying, he's talking 
to his daddy. And he cries out and he says, Abba, daddy, father, if there's any way that you can cause this cup to pass from me, can you accomplish your will in another way other than me going to the cross? I'm afraid. And God's spirit came and comforted him, didn't take away the trial, but comforted him. And what Paul is saying here, he intends for us to make that connection. He intends for us to to understand the illusion is back to Jesus. Because what he's saying is, we have that same access to daddy, our father, as Jesus did. Because when we come into the presence of the father, we come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus turns and says, daddy, this one is welcome too, because he also is your child, beloved, Just like I am beloved of you, I have made this one part of your family. God, accept this one in time of trouble and trial and need. And so in the midst of trials and troubles, the Spirit is saying, cry out. Go boldly into the presence of God so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is your high priest, your advocate, your brother, saying, this one belongs, Jesus. This one belongs, Father. Daddy, let him in. And so as we walk with the Spirit, we experience security, confidence. We belong to God. We experience intimacy. We can cry out with confidence. Father, rescue. And then fourth, we experience Spirit-guaranteed hope for the future. Read with me in chapter 8 and verse 17. If we are children, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Since indeed we suffer along with him, so that we also will be glorified with him. When I hear the word uh, heir or inheritance, it makes me think one thing, and that is there's more to come. Are you going to receive an inheritance? Well, it means you don't have something now, but you will have something in the future. And Paul is helping us reset our minds, not just to the present, but Toward the future, there is something that is coming. What is that? What is it that we will receive in the future? Well, he says it is sharing in the glory of Christ. What does it mean to share in the glory of Christ? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The inheritance that Jesus Christ will receive, the glory that he will enjoy is first a renewed world. I want you to keep your place here in Romans 8 and turn back to the book of Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new or a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And in Jewish thought, the sea was a symbol for, uh, for, for chaos. It was a symbol for, for danger and death. It was a symbol of uh, the curse that had fallen on the earth. And John writes and he says, Now when we are in the renewed heavens and the renewed earth, There's no longer any sea. And as he'll say in chapter 22, that means there's no longer a curse. The curse has been removed from the earth itself. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. That is, we will share in this renewed earth. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and God himself will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Those are a part of the first things. Those are a part of the first order. And those will not exist any longer. The earth will yield its fruit, its produce. And there won't be conflict between man and earth. Our relationships will work. We will not be fighting with one another and needing to forgive one another. Because we will have perfect relationships. We have perfect relationship with God. All our work will be satisfying. We won't go to our job and feel frustration. We will go to our jobs in the kingdom of God and enjoy every single moment of that labor. On a renewed earth. Now turn back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 22. Paul says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Well, Paul, I thought we already were redempted. And he says, yeah, or already were adopted. He says, yeah, you were, your status was changed, but you haven't yet received the fullness of that adoption. And you won't until your body is redeemed, until your body is made whole, and the members of your body can no longer be presented to sin any longer. You no longer even experience temptation, and you don't experience sorrow or pain or disease or corruption or decay. A renewed body enjoying a renewed earth, a renewed world. And right now you have the Spirit as a first fruit or as a pledge. Literally, he says in Ephesians, you've got a down payment. You've got the first installment, but you don't have it yet. And so the normal Christian experience now is groaning. We would like for it not to be that way, but it is groaning. And what Paul develops here in Romans chapter 8 is a theology of suffering. Because we are rich and we have an inheritance waiting for us, but right now, we're still waiting to receive it. And so there is struggle, there is frustration. The earth groans, creation groans, and we groan. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong here. We're out of step here. From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state, or literally the body of our humiliation, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. But now, we suffer. And sometimes we're under the delusion that, well, we, we, we believe in Jesus Christ and then everything gets set right and all suffering is erased and it all works right. No, that's not the normal Christian life. Right now, uh, we suffer. Paul says suffering is, first of all, inevitable and it's universal. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation was subjected to futility, 
All of creation suffers. We suffer. Christ suffered. When Paul talks about suffering here, I think he's talking about all suffering. Disease and sickness and illness. Struggle, the battle, the suffering of Romans chapter 7, that internal suffering. Suffering because we are believers in Jesus Christ and we're out of step with the world. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul says. Paul's not a stranger to suffering. He says, this is the pattern in my life. I suffer, but I hope for glory. Jesus suffered and then glory. And so for his children as well, this is the normal pattern of life. Suffering and then glory. He says it's inevitable. It's universal. Everyone will experience it. Second, though, it is temporary and it is minor. Verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this, literally this now time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, That word there that Paul uses for uh, not worthy is, uh, the image behind it is literally uh, balancing the scales. Okay? And so what Paul is saying is, in my mind, I went through a mental exercise and I thought about the glory that it will be revealed to us and I thought the suffering, about the sufferings for the present time and I realized, no, the glory that will be revealed far outweighs. It is not worthy, that is, this weighs so much more. It's so much more important. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I think Paul really synthesizes all that we've been talking about in these three verses. Chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man, the members of our body, they're decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day as we walk in step with the Spirit. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You see the image there? The eternal weight of glory. It's eternal and it's heavy. This is light and it's temporary. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look or we set our minds not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, those things are eternal. That is a spiritual mindset. Set your mind on those things. And remember, Paul is not making light of our suffering. Paul knew suffering, didn't he? Right? Stoned to death, nearly, left for dead, beaten with a whip, just like Jesus, it had stones in it. He had his back shredded, he was put in jail, he was hungry, had no food, he was thirsty, he was shipwrecked, he spent nights out in the open. Paul Paul is when he says light suffering, <laughs> he experienced probably more than any of us have ever experienced. He says, no, it's just for a moment. It's just light. When I compare it to the weight of glory. And that really is what Paul is trying to do for us. He's trying to turn our minds toward things that last forever and are so much more important and so much more valuable so that we will live in the presence in light of eternity. Now, third... Our suffering is actually validation. When we suffer, we're tempted to think. God doesn't love us. God has forgotten about us. God isn't a good father. God has abandoned us, right? Don't we all, aren't we all tempted to think that when we suffer? What Paul is saying is, no, that's validation that you don't belong here. That's validation that you belong to another age. 
Because suffering is the way this age works. Well, God, why don't you intervene right now? Just because right now I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting so that people can watch you walk in step with me. They can even watch you suffer. But suffer with hope. So that they can see that there is something beyond this world and they can be drawn to me and to eternal life through you. And so right now I'm waiting so that I can draw others. There is meaning and there is purpose in everything that we suffer. Even if we can't say specifically, this is why. And I will tell you, if you don't have a good theology of suffering, you will be very confused about what God is doing in your life. And you will get frustrated and you will become bitter with God and you may walk away. And in fact, you will hear a lot of very bad theology on suffering from Christian pulpits. God's goal for your life is not simply that you be healthy and happy and rich. God's goal for your life is that you be holy and like Christ. And part of that process for him to make you like Christ includes suffering. Why? Because Jesus suffered first and then he'll be glorified. And he's saying, I want you to follow the pattern of the life of Christ. And sometimes that will include suffering, but it will always have the hope of glory. Paul's final point. While we wait, we suffer, but while we suffer, we hope. Verse 19, Romans chapter 8. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, creation is waiting until we get our redemption because when we get our redemption, that says, ah, now, all of creation is going to be set right. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, that word for anxious longing, is, it's a beautiful word. It's a combination of actually three words. It means to stretch the head away from. Okay, one translation says, we are on our tiptoes. Okay, To stretch the head away from. Paul is saying, don't be so myopic. This is not all there is to life. Stretch your head away from this and long for this. The anxious longing of creation. Waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God when all things will be set right. You know, several years ago, uh, we wanted to have kids and and we weren't able to have kids. We went through... um, Years of, of infertility, and we were waiting, and we were waiting, and we were waiting. I will tell you, it was horrible to wait. I hate to wait for anything. But waiting for this was really, really painful. We're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And there was a lot of tears as we waited. And then finally, after four years, Tristy became pregnant. And I'll tell you, man, it was an amazing day. We, we cried tears of joy. We were, we were thrilled. And she got sick. But we were happy. For nine months, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And we were anxious because the goal was not to get pregnant. The goal was to have a child. And so we're waiting during this time. It became increasingly painful and then really painful. (laughs) Really painful. And Tristy went into labor and I learned a lesson. Stay very uh, clear of your wife during labor. Because I, I was blamed for everything in the world. You know, I mean, Middle East conflict or whatever. I mean, it's, uh, it's all my fault. 
And it was painful, not for me, if I stayed clear, but it was painful for her. It was really painful. And then there was joy. And an amazing thing happened. Shortly after that, she wanted another. Really? The pain was forgotten. Why? Because compared to the joy, it was nothing. It didn't feel momentary and light in the middle of it. I assure you, based on observation. <laughs> but having passed for my wife, it, it, it was momentary and light. Hey, and that's what Paul is doing for us. He's saying, trust me. Trust the Lord. As we close, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion. And yesterday I was, I was meditating on communion and the lessons of communion. And, and this is what came to my mind. First, Communion is a reminder to us that Jesus suffered too. We're not alone in suffering. And God didn't just immediately jump down and rescue Jesus from the pain or rescue him from the cross. Even when he cried, Abba, Father, he comforted Jesus and he strengthened Jesus. And then he led him into the suffering. Jesus suffered too. There is an end to our suffering because Jesus conquered death. This isn't the end of the story. There's meaning to our suffering because we're following the pattern of Jesus, which is suffering, then glory. And when we are suffering, we have an advocate before the Father. We have Jesus Christ pleading and saying, Father, they belong to you, Abba. Father, these are your children, your beloved sons, your beloved daughters, in whom you are well pleased. So as we go into communion, I'd like the men to come forward and begin to serve us. I'd like you to meditate upon the suffering of Christ. And the glory that will be his and ours to follow. I'd like you to also take a few moments and uh, just go before the Lord and uh, make sure that the accounts are clear. We are secure as his children. But ask the Lord through his spirit to reveal, is there any sin that needs to be confessed? Is there any barrier to your fellowship with him? Just spend a few moments quietly and then we will uh, take the cup and we'll take the bread together. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it in front of his disciples and he said, this bread uh, is my body, broken for you, broken, representing the physical suffering that I will go through on your behalf. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup uh, is the new covenant in my blood, my blood that will be uh, shed, my, my death, to make payment for your sins. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we're thankful that you were willing to suffer. We're thankful that the, your suffering and uh, even this opportunity to share communion together reminds us that uh, you have conquered sin and death. So even as we wait, we can wait with, with hope. It's not the end of the story for us. This is uh, just a moment. It's a breath. It's a vapor. As we suffer well, we draw others to life in you. So I pray, Father, that uh, through the power of your spirit, we would bring honor and glory and point people to your son, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that uh, no matter what the trials come, no matter what uh, struggles we go through, it is well. It is well with our soul because we're secure in Jesus. I thank you, Father, that the Spirit has caused us to be adopted as your sons, secure in you, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, because you love us. 
I thank you, Father, that we have hope. This is not the end of the story for us, even when we have momentary and light afflictions. I pray, Father, that you would reorient our minds toward a perspective that that loves eternity and loves the things that will last forever. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that you'd send us out this week and and we we would learn the patterns of life to stay connected with you through all of our days and all of our moments. And I pray that we would see our hearts and our minds transformed by the power of your spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.